Hello and welcome to Contramundum. I am your host, uh, Pastor Andrew Risker, and I am uh, now officially the chief Christian nationalist activist in America, uh, according to James Lindsay. So um, you heard it here first. Uh, I've been promoted. Uh, please welcome my co-host, CJ Engel. Hello, CJ. Hey, Andrew. I'm excited. How was your week, CJ? I'm for this one. <laughs> How was I, your week, CJ? My week was my week was great. Um, I've been chewing lots of Greco gum. I've been my right. Twitter feed has been blowing up, which I I always get excited, and then I'm like, wait, I don't like this at all. It's very tiresome. <laughs> but um, I just I did some short like Lin, like James Lindsay dunking, and it went kind of crazy. So it's always very it's always very insane. easy to do, and uh, and it's you always gets returns. So that's uh, <laughs> uh, that's it's great, uh, and and also uh, it is my absolute pleasure to. Uh, to introduce to you our, our guest for this week, uh, Mr. Charles Haywood. Uh, Charles Haywood, his uh, uh, blog is uh, The Worthy House. He is online at The Worthy House, all one word, uh, on Twitter. Uh, he, he is a guy, I, I, uh, and, I, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to flatter him here, but he's, this is a guy, and, and this is, this is going to be tough for him to live up to, but I think he could do it. Uh, this, there, so many people online, I'm like, this guy, you know, he has a good understanding of stuff, you know, at, at a 75 or 80% clip. Like, this guy's really good. That's typically how I look at most people. Uh, but with, with Charles, uh, his his political analysis, uh, his, his um, understanding of political theory, uh, history, um, just the current context of, of the battles before us and so forth, uh, I always look at it and I'm like, this guy gets it. Every time I read something, I'm like, whoa. This guy really gets it, um, and so that's so. This is this is these are big shoes I'm putting you in, and, and I know you're going to live up to them. But please welcome Charles Haywood. Uh, I, uh, that is a, a fantastic introduction. In fact, I'll, I'll <laughs> slice that out and I'll give it to future people who chose to appear on it. So yeah, I'm perfect. And I am pleased to be here. Oh, thank you, thank you so much for for giving us your time here today. And and one of the topics, especially. You know, all three of us are are interested in. Uh, CJ got attacked last week online because of this. Uh, because he's, he uh, he really likes this this mid twentieth century political thinker. So you know what that means. Uh, and uh, and so CJ was attacked over liking Carl Schmidt, saying, "Hey, Carl Schmidt had some good ideas." Um, and, and of course, you know, I've written about him. I've I've referenced him before in some of the things I've written. Um, and CJ has, and, and, and of course, uh, you have as well, Charles. So I think that's, you know, right off the bat, uh, we should talk about Charles Schmidt, especially because it feels like more and more people, um, on the, in, in the online right are beginning to, uh, understand the the failures of, of liberalism there was the article by by paul gottfried we referenced on on this show a few weeks ago um about the failures of liberalism being what led to wokeness i think it was a very accurate appraisal of the situation um and and so schmidt is one of the original critics of liberalism from the right um e even though he wasn't really the uh, necessarily this like anti-liberal guy he wanted to maintain the the political order that existed but he knew that there was just there's simply no way that it could it could defend itself um within its own parameters so uh before i before i botch everything i'll let the the experts that i have here with me uh talk about it but what yeah what do you the substance of, of carl schmidt uh did you see the uh the t-shirt i posted online that i had made no i don't know if they did i don't know also, if they did uh, i this was actually a friend of mine suggested part of this so i can't claim total credit for it. but you know those 
signs that say in this neighborhood we believe. Oh yes, I did see this. Yes, <laughs> I have this. I have this both as meme and I had a shirt made that says in this neighborhood we decide the state of yes. exception and <laughs> who is friend, who is enemy. So of course our famous Carl Schmidt taglines: uh, you know, "Sovereign is he who decides the state of exception and." friend enemy distinction so uh, i'm gonna wear this shirt to costco and stuff but i'm pretty sure no one's gonna get the joke that's the sad yeah. thing i, I no. wasn't make a yard sign but my wife is like no one's gonna get the joke yeah no <laughs> no no that's that's just it like i i yeah i i i make jokes like that people that just over everybody's head like yeah. like josh abatoy he tweeted uh hey i'm not a christian nationalist i just want more exception deciders to, to be Christians. Uh, <laughs> it's like, I thought that was hilarious. And it, it got like 10 likes. And I'm like, come on. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm a big Carl Schmidt fan. Schmidt, I mean, I am hardly a Carl Schmidt expert. Someone like Paul Gottfried mm-hmm. is obviously there. Carl Schmidt, Edward, I think CJ knows probably way more about Schmidt than I do. But I have been working my way through chronologically all of Schmidt's works and trying to link them together into somewhat of an overarching framework, which is difficult, both because they're difficult works and because Schmidt is notoriously protean in the sense that he, the stuff he says from one book to the next does not necessarily fit neatly together. And that's because Schmidt, of course, is the opposite of an ideologue, an ideologue mm-hmm. being someone who has a preconceived philosophical or intellectual framework into which he tries to force reality, whereas Schmidt was trying to fit reality into an intellectual framework in some of the most chaotic times that uh, that the West has ever seen, so you got to you know, yeah. give I the guy some, some slack. I, for his yeah, yeah. I, I think I think modern readers have a hard time with Schmidt. It's not just Schmidt, but it's anyone who kind of came before like the 1950s, like because people used to talk about. I mean, even the entire English tradition, all those people used to talk about theory in terms of what the political needs were of the time. You know, that's kind of how yeah. theory came about, and that's why it's hard to read Schmidt because people. Are, for a number of reasons, have no idea what happened in Germany in the 1920s when when Schmidt was at his heyday. And so it's hard to understand and derive things from Schmidt by just reading his commentary on current German situation. Yeah, I mean, you can do it. I think most of the modern English translations have pretty good notes, so that helps. Uh, I mean, some of them are hostile notes. But it's not, not too bad, and there's a couple of different translators and so on. Uh, but you do have to come to it with some knowledge of the, some fairly detailed knowledge of the history that doesn't come from Wikipedia. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so I mean, I guess you know we've we've kind of you know danced around Schmidt a little bit, but I mean his big his big you know point is friend enemy distinction and and, and all of these things. Um, and of course, you know you see it used in this kind of low IQ way where it's this very simplistic you know uh, friend enemy grug brain kind of thing. Um, you see this. I mean, it's almost the same way. Um, I don't, Charles. I don't know how familiar you are with like uh, Vantillian presuppositional uh, apologetics and, and theology, but you there, yeah, there, there were, there were in, in that world, in the reformed you know, evangelical world, you, you know, Vantill, I'm, I've moved away from, from this uh, CJ can attest, you know, to that, but um, there is this, this thing where his, all of it, all this brilliant thinker uh, who, you know, has volumes and volumes of work. All of his thinking is reduced down to, by what standard? And that's like the argument. By what standard? By what standard? That's the only thing people could parrot this this idea, and it's just it's really stupid when they do just that. Yeah. Um. It's the same thing with Schmidt, where it's like, oh, friend enemy distinction. Here we go. Like there, there's way more to it than that. I mean, some of it is like you read concept of the political, and he's like you said, he's working, he's working really backward from 
from just the basics of what is what is the political, what what is politics, and and how do we understand this? And it's really this basic distinction, right? Just like all these other you know spheres of life um, are built out of these distinctions, right? Yes. Here within within politics, it's the distinction between friend and enemy, and what is what is a friend, what is an enemy? Um, who you know, and the enemy, of course, in, in Schmidt's terminology, is is the other, is this person that um, who poses an existential threat to to your existence or to your people's existence um and and so like it's 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 way deeper than that like he's he's deriving the entire understanding of of politics from this principle rather than just saying okay here's how you do politics you got your friends here and your enemies over there and you you that you have a clear black and white thing here like it's way deeper than that way way more than that so i guess flesh that out some more for me and what do you what do you, what do you mean what is the friend enemy distinction and and how does it um how does it you know fill out the this politics that that he has or his understanding of reality really is that me or cj uh charles you go ahead and then cj will will bounce off right. of uh, yeah. i'm not certain that i'm qualified to to uh <laughs> be the the schmidt expert i did however do the concept of the political several months ago and i think that you, you, the brief summary at kind of the top level that you gave gave is accurate i think closely relates to a, a lot of schmidt's writings and you see this in for example the crisis of parliamentary democracy and you also see it in legality and legitimacy which is as i said one of the is the work i'm, I'm working on now this idea that to have any kind of coherent polity that revolves around popular participation, whether that's mm-hmm. straight democracy or a parliamentary system. And he, he he goes to great lengths to precisely define these things rather than loosely using things, terms like democracy as, as people do nowadays. Anything that this that purports to embody indirectly or directly the popular will relies on that society fundamentally being a unity. That is, the uh, on having a set of norms and he uses the terms norms a lot, for example, in legality and legitimacy, that you can't have any system like that if there's too much divergence among the first principles of the people in that country. And I think that relates, though he doesn't, as far as I know, draw this parallel precisely to friend-enemy distinction, but it boils down to the same thing, which is something that I focus on a lot, which is that fundamentally you can't run a society where the divergence of opinion on norms uh, is too great because there's, you you inevitably end up and again what he discusses a lot in legality and legitimacy which is this bizarre situation where you have 51 percent of the vote whether democratically or parliamentary allows that group of people to take actions that the 49 percent in this system have no right of resistance to schmidt is very yeah. big on the right of resistance in this work so i think when you talk about friend enemy it not only can be frequently used as a overly trite uh, analysis, mm-hmm. not clear what that really means. I mean, sure, like everyone has friends and enemies, like, you know, I, I, in your personal life, in your political life. But I think what it really means is you can't run a society with friends and enemies. It also has a foreign policy implication, which he fleshes out in concept mm-hmm. a nation's friend and a nation's enemies and so mm-hmm. on. It's focusing on within a nation. Fundamentally, you, 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 the friend-enemy distinction is closely tied to the fact you just can't have a society where there's a divergence of perception of the way things should be. So I think that's yeah. really very important for us now. It's not Absolutely. an abstraction. It's because the, the fact is that there are, and I like to give the example of Merrick Garland. 
there's no universe in which Merrick Garland is fit to live in the same country as me. He should go to another country. Oh, we should start the guy because I don't want to have anything whatsoever to do with Merrick Garland. I don't want to. I don't want to associate with him. I don't want him to be in my polity. I want him just to leave. So you yeah. know, bye, Merrick, or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's an exemplar. I mean, I mean, I mean it seriously. I, I wish he would leave. But yeah. uh, but you know, <laughs> me too. <laughs> there's no universe in which in some in 2026 Merrick and Charles who now on a first name basis, apparently get together and talk about how great their, their common country is. There's a, yeah. We're over that. So that's yeah. kind of my, my practical application. That's not really directly answering your question, but I kind of dodged it. My practical that's application of uh, a friend enemy. Uh, well, hey, the uh, answer the question. I mean, it's perfect politician answer. Answer the question <laughs> you wanted to, to ask. It. That makes it also makes up for a bad, you know, interviewer. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but no, I think I mean along those lines, Charles. Uh, it's I think it's really good because you know you've you've talked about also uh, no enemies to the right, and this is along this, those same lines, especially when we we talk about this divergence where there there are simply two different visions for the country at least two uh different visions for america within um you know within the you know modern discourse today or it's just the divergence is so great where we don't even we don't we we share a country but we don't we don't share anything else we share the same physical space but the the regime um the ruling elite whatever whatever you know appellation you want to give them um they they have a totally different where where, where the world that we we grew up in, we love the America that we love. They despise, they want to destroy, and they are destroying. Um, and and so we we can't we can't share anything with it. It isn't it isn't like the you know the just the wonderful bucolic days of the 1980s where the Democrats and the Republicans could could bicker over you know one percent uh, difference in in marginal you know, income yep. tax, you know, yeah. like that, that's, that's like, well, they, they still, we're the same country. We're opposed to the Soviet union. We're fighting the cold war together, blah, blah, blah. Like we're on the same side. We're all Americans here. That doesn't exist at all anymore. It's not September 12th, 2001. Like that's kind of the bipartisan, you know, vision that is always bandied about. Uh, but these are, these are people who are, um, you know, in Schmidian terms, they are, they're, they're enemies in, in the true sense. They're not enemies, um, they're not like you, know, you, you, where he, you know, you bring up like Plato, they're not fellow Greeks that we're fighting against. This is not Athens versus Sparta. This is, this is Athens versus barbarians, um, that, that we're looking at. So well, I want to, I want to interject here. Like one of the things that people miss when they, when they absorb this type of rhetoric or they just repeat it, they conceive of the situation or they conceive of the narrative here. Like Schmidt is saying that we need to go out and find enemies to conquer that. We need to like, look at the masses and recognize that these people with these like ridiculous lifestyles, like hippies or something. And we need to conquer them because they're, they don't live up to our way of life. But he's really specifically talking about political friends and political enemies. He's talking about absorbing those themes at the level of power yeah. and the contest for power and the dynamics of politics have to do with, um, specifically like there's specific boundaries around it so it's not like the authority like the people like the sovereign authority the one who wields the sword is going out and attacking like these random people like these gay people because we don't like the way that they live their life that's not what the friend and enemy distinction is yeah. it's actually the absorption of different visions of how the world should be and what needs to be done at the political level within the mm -hmm. context of power and they absorb that and they represent a conflict at that level and the people at large 
are just kind of reflecting political differences. You know, um, they're just reflecting the, uh, you know, the elites that are, that are having these, these battles, that are having these struggles. And so these, these mutual, mutually exclusive ways of life are specifically politically related. So I guess, uh, you know, Charles, I want you to like elaborate a little bit on the distinction between a private enemy and a public enemy and what that means yeah. in terms of Carl Schmitt's focus on the political. Because what he's doing when he talks about the concept of the political is he's juxtaposing politics from its new meaning, which he describes as like a legalism. So there's a difference between like the making of laws and the legality of things and politics as its own category. So just talk about why specifically a public <laughs> enemy is what I'm he's talking about. about. Distinction at some length in my, uh, in my uh, discussion of the concept mm -hmm. of the political hostis versus inimicus in, in the Latin terms, the public enemy and the, and the private enemy. I'll, I'll turn to that in a second, but I'll say two things briefly uh, tied to what, what you just said. First of all, I think it's important to remember when, you, when you're reading Schmidt that the people, that is the German people when he was writing at, at the time he wrote, uh, had an entirely different quality or a largely different quality than the people nowadays. Because, you know, first of all, they're German. And Germans are kind of sui generis within a historical Western framework. But the, the clown factor was orders of magnitude lower. Like even the people who, who were extremely hostile to the Weimar state, who Schmidt, until he joined up opportunistically and briefly with the National Socialists, he was very concerned about keeping the communists and the National Socialists from gaining power. But he, I understood perfectly well, these were serious men with serious thoughts who could defend their position and you know, didn't say stupid things. They may have said things were grossly erroneous, but they weren't stupid people. Mm -hmm. So he was writing for an audience and a time and a place and a civilization that was far less decayed than ours. I mean, certainly the Weimar Germany had its decayed elements, but that's not the, the mass of the people. So I think it's important to, to, to know that he had a, well, he wasn't a big fan of democracy or anything like that. His, his general view of the competency of the people was much higher than I think anybody sensible person nowadays would lend to the current American population. And then it does change some of the analysis with Schmidt. And while it is true, and I'll, here I'll move to the hostis and amicus distinction, it, it is true that it, the when Schmidt says friend enemy, he doesn't mean going out and attacking people for their lifestyle per se. But you know, for example, the gay people are a good example because giving in to the demands of the gay agenda has led to the wholesale destruction of America. So, right. When it so he talks about the fact that certain things can become a political issue. Right. And that's a good, that's a perfect example of one where, in fact, if you allow the norms to be perverted, then you end up in a political battle about something that's initially seems simply like a social matter. Right. But back to Hostis and Amicus. Now I have to dredge up my memory because, it, because it's been a couple of months. And uh, but, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, Schmidt, Schmidt's basic distinction and he, you know, Schmidt was a indifferent, well, he was a conflicted Catholic in many ways. And so he, yeah. he approached much of this through the, the Catholic lens and more, more broadly through the, through the Christian lens. But he drew a distinction between uh, Hostis and Amicus in his writing, being, meaning the private enemy and the public enemy, the private enemy being inimicus, the person you have a beef with, in other words. So he stole my girlfriend, so he's my enemy. That's a, he, he, yeah. that's kind of a silly example, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the hostess, which is the, the, 
the public enemy, and that is someone who opposes the uh, will. I mean, I, I'd say I don't want to say the will of the nation, <laughs> national socialist overtones. That's not what it means at all. But opposes the the will of the people in uh, a existential sense. And he, what he ties this to, and this is something that I wrote about at some length, which I think is is very important because people in our neck of the woods frequently, again, it goes to back to this trite kind of use of complex, complex, con complex concepts. Well, Jesus said to love your enemies. And so if, when you talk about friend enemy distinction or how you need to advert to the fact that you have enemies, yeah. then you, you're punching Christ and that's bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously punching Christ is bad, but the, the as he points out, the Vulgate, um, the Vulgate, which of course is the initial Latin translation of the mm -hmm. New Testament, exclusively uses the word inimicus for enemies. And the Greek words, which are the original, are slightly more ambiguous, but basically carry the same sense, which is Christ is referring exclusively to the private enemy, not to the public enemy. And as Schmidt points out, it would never have occurred in a thousand years of fighting Islam for Christians to say, well, you know, Islam... Muslims aren't our enemies, so we need to just love love all the Muslims and and roll over for them. Yeah. So th this open is, the gates to Vienna and here, here right. come on in. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, this is tied to a slightly different concept, which is Christ didn't say pretend you don't have any enemies. He said love your enemies. Yeah. Which is also yeah. another layer of this discussion. But the so many Christians today are completely crippled by this this line yeah. of attack and this line of thought internally to themselves. They think that when you know, the people are grooming their children in schools that, well, you know, maybe that's not great, but I really shouldn't complain because I'm not loving them. When the reality is that, you know, <laughs> there's a wide range of things that should be done that you are not, are not in fact. Look at what Jesus said. Like, look at what Jesus said about specifically those type of people. What does he say? He says, if, if, if whoever would harm one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and have him be right. cast into the sea. Right. And it's stack, like stack of millstones in my backyard. Total coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. It, I mean, yeah, Charles, I, I preached on, uh, on the gospel of Matthew two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and I hadn't read Concept of the Political yet. I wish I would have because it would have added even more to it. But I, you know, and Matthew, I, I, I looked up my old sermon on Matthew 7, uh, chapter 7, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you get if you get hit in the cheek, uh, turn the other cheek, you know, so on and so forth. And um, what I wrote, and there, there are some, some Christian commentaries, some Christian tradition that um, explains this well, not in the same terms as Schmidt, uh, with uh, hostess versus uh, in Imicus, in, in yeah, I don't speak Latin, so uh, uh, but uh, it and I, I, I preached on it. I just said, like, look, this is for one, it's a slap, it's not a punch. That's what Jesus, you know, it, it, clear in the Greek, it's it's a slap. Uh, two, this is not this is not a fight to the death. This is you being embarrassed and and you being humiliated by someone. It's not it's not you know someone assaulting you and beating you up, and it's not like the marine on the subway. Right, it's not a situation yeah. like that. Um, it is, it is. You need to turn. It's, it's, it's this. You know, uh, this private enemy who is humiliating you that you need to. And this is the language I use. This private enemy who you you need to you know, bear with and and lay down your life for. Um, it is not the same. Jesus is not preaching pacifism here. He's not saying, all right, when your enemy is at the gates and he's going to come, you know. 
uh, it, 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 you just think of like the Middle Ages or the ancient world. Um, and you're, you're fighting, you know, the Assyrians are surrounding Jerusalem and, and they have an army of a hundred thousand and, and they're going to come, they're going to kill all of you. They're going to take your children as slaves and they're going to rape all your women. And you think, well, we better just open the gates and let them in. Like that, that's insane. Jesus is not preaching that at all. Not at all. You read the entire Bible and the whole rest of the Bible. It's not preaching pacifism. It's, yeah. it's saying to lay down your life for your, your private enemies. This, these pe- the, and it's the same question of like, who is my neighbor? Right, it's the people you come into contact every single day. It's not, um, it's not if you are a you know a Russian or Ukrainian soldier, both ma- the majority of whom uh, profess Christ. Uh, are they supposed to just say, well, we're not going to fight in this war for our countries because, uh, well, Jesus said not to kill. Uh, you know, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's I think, insane. Uh, I mean, this is a fraught topic. I think that's a good analysis. I think the humility part of it is actually very, very notable. That is, you know. It, Christ preaches humility when people slap you, you're not reacting in a prideful fashion is very difficult and something obviously that's that's desired. It is true, however, that that pacifism up until around the millennium was the dominant or largely dominant strain in a lot of Christian thinking. Not all of it, but I mean mm-hmm. the, you, you saw this particularly in Eastern Christianity, that there was a mm-hmm. what pacifism wasn't required, but there was a definite tension. There's for for example, obviously you could be a soldier. But the the principle in the Eastern Church for a long time was that soldiers who killed somebody still had to go to confession uh, before receiving the sacraments, not because they had sinned per se. The Orthodox view of confession is somewhat different than the Catholic view of confession, Mm -hmm. but simply because you weren't killing people, even if it was justified Mm -hmm. morally, wasn't fully measuring up to the standard that Christ had set. So uh, I think it's important. I mean, I don't want to be cavalier about enemies. I, I do think all my enemies need to be moved into a new country that's about ten miles square. Uh, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it may be somewhere like in southern Nevada, maybe. Uh, yeah. But you know, uh, yeah, but I don't want to be overly cavalier. I, 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 it's like um, I did this review of uh, not very good uh, science fiction trilogy one of the books is red rising and but it does have a good opening line which is i would have lived in peace but my enemies brought me war and so uh, i mean and, and that's what that's basically w- w- where we are i mean and, and i mean you can yeah. you could argue that for most things uh, you sometimes it's a facetious argument so i mean mm-hmm. for example but like if you're a ukrainian or a russian you could argue both sides you could say well it's their fault or it's, you know you, you, mm-hmm. but so it, it's generally a reasonable argument but it's we shouldn't be overly cavalier about it. I guess is my one of the yeah. things that's one of the things that's interesting to me is like you know that I mean this is a very like people don't they don't like the language of friend enemy, and yet it's ironic because they tend to be more uh, you know especially Americans tend to be more favorable toward the U.S. military and its uh, objectives and and activities um, than than myself and Andrew and I'm sure you as well. They tend to be more favorable toward those things. Um, I mean. They can think in terms of friends and enemies when it's beneficial for the regime because the regime does operate politically. The regime is a, is a decider between friends and enemies. And so, like, you cannot deny in politics the existence of these categories. But what is happening is um, the, the, the ideology that kind of sustains the American way is that we've transcended the friend-enemy distinction, we've transcended politics. They kind of see the the 20th century as like the conquering of politics. Politics is something that held mm-hmm. back 
Western civilization. And it was because of the liberal democratic ideology that came forth and defeated the old world that we now can transcend politics. And this this type of rhetoric was it was in place in the post-progressive era. It was in place in Germany in 1920s. And so what was happening for Schmidt is he was saying, there are consequences, and, I, and, and this is where I'm going to ask you a question, but there are consequences for denying the political. You're not actually going to eradicate the political, but by suppressing it and pretending like it doesn't exist, you're going to get a totalitarianism. You're going to get the total state. So I don't know if you're prepared yet to like to talk about those themes of Schmidt, but in your mind right now, what are the consequences of des- denying the concept of the political? Well, it's, a con- it's the, like the, cons- the consequence of denying any facet of reality. It, it, it erodes any kind of coherent society because you're living in this in this fantasy world and trying to impose a alien anti-reality framework upon the reality of things. So denying, I mean, but there is this concept of denying the political. Schmidt goes on at, at great length criticizing Hans Kelsen and these other legal positivists of early 20th century Germany in their interpretations of the Weimar Constitution, where they argued, well, you know, since everybody has to have an equal chance to gain power, and these are the relatively easy ways to amend the Constitution, if the a group that desires to destroy the uh, society, the typical examples being the communists and the national socialists, they, and they get electoral power, they can't do that. Whereas Schmidt argued that that was carrying legal uh, positivism, the idea that uh, politics was, um, you know, have been, existential politics have been superseded entirely too far because it would lead to, lead to national suicide. Suicide is, is his term. And of course, that's what we get, that's what not what we got, that's what they got, right. <laughs> obviously, and it ended very, very badly for them. But I think your, mm-hmm. your first point there is actually the most important for our current situation, which is the regime is fully capable of playing politics. And that political action fundamentally revolves around the exact same thing that uh, that a lot of uh, German politics revolved around, which is denying, and more frequently, the uh, left-wing politics tends to revolve around universally in any country, uh, Finland and Spain and other places, is denying legitimacy to anything that is not uh, left. And so you see this most notably. People have been noticing the extreme uptick in claims by people like Biden, President Biden, about uh, <laughs> about <clears throat> you know, white supremacy and white nationalism. And they say, well, and people correctly say, well, you know, what? Are, you know, and obviously it, is, <laughs> it flows into Christian nationalism. You know, it's all tarred with the same brush. But then people respond by saying, well, you know, where are these uh, white supremacists? And under which bed are they? But they don't, they don't seem to understand that it's not meant to be real. It's merely right. meant no. to be a rhetorical device denied legitimacy to anybody who's not part of the regime. And so we're back yeah. where we started, which is they have identified themselves as our enemies. Right. And that's just the way it is. So, Schmidt would probably say the same thing. So let me, let me ask you this then. In your mind, what is the significance of there's sort of been a rehabilitation of Carl Schmidt on the left, and yet the conservative movement in America and the, and the, and the West is very uh, – they don't like to speak in these terms. They like to appeal to more classically liberal categories. What are the consequences of a left being aware of the friend-enemy distinction, but us having no right 
that is equally aware of these distinctions? What's happening here? Well, I read no French, but my understanding is that Schmidt has been popular since World War II in, in France among the left and mm -hmm. more generally among, among the European left for this, among, among other reasons. But the consequences are uh, an etern eternal Jordan Peterson simpering and crying in his chair. I mean, you know, they, they, that's that's what the consequences are. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> I mean, that's just what it is. You know, oh, oh, this is this is exclusive content right here. This is this is the best. Yes, <laughs> because when you, uh, but that's just. You know, I, I always complain about the left denying reality, but the pe the people on the right who deny these this are also denying reality. So what you end up with is this. And James Lindsay, who everybody's been, been beating on, I mean, it's like it's like beating up on, on the class class retard. I mean, you know, it's not it's not really it's not really like fair. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, everyone's beating up on Lindsay because he he's he says these insane, self contradictory, I know. nonsensical things, but he's trapped within his own frame. So the consequence right. yeah. is it, it, the consequence is is not just clownishness it's allowing the evil people who run the regime the same people who are pushing mm -hmm. this this friend enemy distinction is exemplified by these claims of white supremacy or whatever and illegitimacy uh, it's giving them power by refusing to push back against them in a way that's necessary mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i i have i have one thing i want to to share see if it see if it works you know i'm i'm, <laughs> I'm the world's world's uh boomeriest uh Millennial yeah, when it comes to technology. I know, I know I'm not, but when it, when it comes to technology, I, I am. Uh, so let me, uh, <laughs> let me, let me, uh, let me see if, uh, here we go. Here we go. I'm sharing something. Here we go. Yes. Found it. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, I don't know if you've seen Ryan Burge, uh, Burge, I think is his you know name, but he does a lot of data polling, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And, um, he he did some charting on just religious affiliation and political activity, political action, voting, right. and and so forth. Um, and and what he shows here is that you know white evangelicals, and, and as far as political acts, it's like going to a rally, giving money to a politician, calling a congressman, or emailing a congressman, things like things of that nature. Um, and here is on, on average, the average white evangelical does that at a about point eight. <laughs> right per year um right but the average atheist is one and a half like way at the very top then then you know jews are over here then agnostics buddhists mainline way ahead of white evangelicals um and so all this is to say is that um you know american evangelicals make up the largest percentage of uh, uh, as far as a religious group white evangelicals we've talked about this the lone bulwark stephen wolf's tweet and all of that mm -hmm. uh but this group um, is largely apolitical. They they are not engaged in politics at all. They've been told, and CJ, I think is you know has been saying you know just just recently said that they're they're not engaged politically. They think that that politics is basically over, uh, or that that liberalism defeated politics or whatever. Um, and within within American Christianity, especially co conservative evangelicalism, um, there's this idea. I mean, some of it is this. Um, we don't have any enemies. Jesus said to be nice to your enemies and, and just let them groom your children. Um, like some of it is that mindset. Some of it is, well, we, we don't want to lose our 501c3. and We can't be political. Separation of church and state. Uh, some of it's that. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons. But you look at people like James Lindsay and the people pushing back against Christian nationalism. Um, 
it's it's I, I think it's it's because it's the same principle as the regime, where if you take this group, right, and you make that white evangelicals, which represent tens of millions of of people, and you move them to be you know not even as political as the average Jew, but as political as the average you know agnostic or even the average mainline Christian, mm-hmm. and I mean that's a sea change in American politics. Right, it's it's that's a massive shift in terms of of the balance of of what could happen, um, and so I think much of the 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 furor over Christian nationalism isn't like oh you know guys like Andrew Isker and Andrew Torba and Stephen Wolf they want to create the American Taliban and take over the government and all this kind of stuff. It's like no, actually, um, I just want Christians to fight for their country instead of giving up. Right, yes. that's that's what I'm trying to do, and so. Uh, yeah, talk about this a little bit. I think they're terrified of that possibility. Um, I mean, I would move mainline up into, I'd lump it together with agnostic, but be that as it yeah. may. <laughs> you know, I think they're terrified of this possibility. It's not, I mean, this is, this is not to them, these attacks on Christian nationalism and other branches of that same tree aren't because they have a philosophical objection. It's because they realize yeah. that you're precisely right. That you know, the the evangelical Christians in general, and certainly white people in general, have long been basically uh, told to shut up and not act uh, in their interests, even when they're being yeah. directly attacked. And so the the regime. I of course <clears throat> am known for purporting the theory. Purport. That's not. That's. Uh, uh, proliferating yeah putting forth, putting forth the theory that the regime is extremely fragile not not powerful but unable to resist a crisis and so i think mm-hmm. they know that whether they enunciate that to themselves i don't know but a the in any kind of massive power shift uh the resulting from a crisis so power shift is the right time a power shift would result from white evangelicals or evangelicals in general actually taking political action. It would be impossible for the regime to to withstand. And mm-hmm. the demoralizing, terrorizing, atomizing these ki- these people is one of the top goals of the regime. It's not going to work out because the reality is that that these kind of massive political sea changes resulting from larger crises are the norm in all Western societal experience. We've just not had any in so long that we pretend that they don't, don't exist along the same lines that CJ was talking about, that we've managed to pretend that political, we've transcended politics, but this is a variation on the same point. You know, it, 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 <clears throat> history will return, as I've been telling my children for, for several years yeah. now, history will return. And um, yeah. I, have, I, you know, I like history, my, uh, my own, personal family history relates to this because my mother fled the communists in 1945 in Hungary. And she's, mm. she can remember, even though she was only seven, uh, how in my grandfather's car, they had German potato masher grenades on the dashboard as they were driving. <laughs> and so you know, Americans can't comprehend that in living memory, yeah. people still alive, yeah. people in Western yeah. societies did things that are incomprehensible to them. But we're just one crisis away from the white evangelicals deciding they've had enough. And the yeah. machine's entire megaphone narrative machine, as Michael Anton uh, refers to that megaphone, and the yeah. narrative is de- devoted to keeping exactly what you suggest should happen from happening. What, uh, <clears throat> I mean, just to, I, uh, 
I mean, we've been through some crises already. You know, uh, 2020 had, had multiple ones. I mean, I think it's all one big one. But um, what would be the thing that would push them over the edge? Because there, there's so many things. I mean, for me personally, the people that I interact with in real life, the Christians I interact with in real life that I've been able to you know, bring into my church and, and, and minister to, um, it's because like they saw the things that happened in 2020 and, and they now are open to rethinking politics at, at, at like a fundamental level. Um, and, and so like what, but that's a small fraction, right? If, if just Christians in my own little town. Um, so what would be the thing that would push that entire block over the edge into well, political action? What would it take? This is a difficult question to answer because historical parallels aren't great. Anton had a piece, which I always refer people to in the new criterion called unprecedented last year, which which is fantastic because it discusses that we've never been in a situation, no Western society, no Eastern society, no society in human history has ever been in the kind of situation we are now with with the kind of regime we have, which actively acts he mm-hmm. hates the people that rules. He has. He goes through this in, in, in great detail. And at the yeah. same time, cr- what happens in crises is difficult to pr- predict from, on a historical basis because of the the effeminate nature of our society, the elderly nature of our society. Uh, there's a whole bunch of kind of characteristics that have never existed in a broad society before. So it's hard to predict what will happen. But I mean, the obvious candidates are a real pandemic that actually kills. Mm-hmm. If, if, if there were a pandemic that killed, say, 5% of children who got it, everything would grind to a halt instantaneously yeah. because all the people who actually yeah. deliver goods aren't going to take the risk for that. Yeah. And yeah. So, so, or loss of a war. I mean, we'll, the United States will almost certainly lose any war it gets into with China and maybe with Russia as well. I, I'm not, you know, oh, Quran enough with tactical yeah. stuff say about that so that could i mean any of these things or of course everyone's favorite economic at least 80 percent of gdp is totally fake right so most people people work at jobs that that in reality no one would it would uh, i don't know if i can swear on this this podcast but david graber the late david graber had this book bullshit jobs uh and um it's a family show it's a family show that's it go ahead (laughs) that's okay (laughs) uh, bs jobs and uh (laughs) we talked about this that that a bs job is one where if it were made illegal no black market would develop (laughs) not in i think it's really the most 80 percent of jobs you can think of fit into that category Mm. and so eventually the stupid will get squeezed out of the system but so many people have, have are they have no way to live other than be get, yeah. being handed free money, and when the, that money isn't can't buy anything or isn't worth anything, well, all bets are off. So something like that, yeah. I guess. But yeah, yeah. it's very hard to predict. You know, I, I I keep thinking of this. I had a conversation a few hours ago for Chronicles um, on the Camp of the Saints book, mm-hmm. and we talked at length about the fact that there is this situation where the armada of immigrants comes to the shores of France. And the leader, the French leader, he's unwilling to make a decision. He's unwilling to defend his people because he had been so uh, demoralized. And there's this, 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 this entire spirit that's been ingrained by all Western elites to hate themselves. They're characterized by self-loathing and a type of nihilism sure. that just makes them completely unable to fight for themselves. But rather, they have to pursue this like universalistic like ideological aspect that 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 actually gives them the moral imperative 
to defeat their own heritage. Yes. Absolutely. And, and I mean, like you, like you said, I can't think of any other situation that's like that, but it so accurately describes the entire West right now. There's just a, like, there's this imperative to destroy themselves. It's amazing. I haven't read camp of the saints though. I have a copy and intend to read it at some point, but I mean, there's an easy two word answer to solve the problem described in, uh, in that, or for that matter at, at our own border cluster bombs. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's, that's yeah. the answer to, to, to that problem. Um, well, this is, once you drop a bunch of cluster bombs, no more people will be arriving and the people well, that's, arriving and, will no longer be arriving. Right. That's what he said. And part of the book is that the Armada first visits Egypt, right? Because it first wants to, you know, uh, make home in Egypt for the third world. Uh, and the Egyptians literally just said, if you don't leave right now, we're going to destroy you. Yeah. They made a political decision. But when they get to France, this is an analogy. This is a spiritual analogy of the spiritual malaise of the West. The French just they're not willing to commit themselves to that type of political decision. And in fact, what he says is is so um, it's amazingly how how prophetic this the scenario is, because what he says is he delegates his authority as the leader of the the embodiment of French interests. He delegates that authority back to individuals. And he says, well, it's up for individuals to decide whether they want to welcome them or not. He delegates his own authority because he's not willing to. <laughs> To, he's not willing to stand up for his own people. I mean, that's amazingly prescient. Well, this is why Viktor Orban, I mean, Europe in general is screwed, but Viktor Orban uh, is, is awesome. And the polls aren't too bad at these things. So, the, I mean, Viktor Orban's problem is that he's a tiny country dependent upon, upon uh, Germany and, and, and other people. And no doubt a color revolution is coming for him. But there, there are still, even in Europe, a few people who will stand up for the national interest. But when was Camp of the Saints written? In the 1960s? Yeah, 70s. Yeah. yeah early yeah. 70s. So, I mean, yeah, uh, but I am an American optimist in the sense that I think a, a 5% of the Americans need to find a new country. But I, I think that there's there, that, that would not happen, uh, broadly speaking, in America. I mean, it's happening now in the sense of a somewhat less alien group of people is invading. Um, but it's not. It, it, and so maybe this contradiction. But the fact is that nobody, because they're back to the unprecedented thing, they're being welcomed in by this illegitimate regime that rules us. And things haven't gone bad enough for that regime to get, as as Schmidt uh, would talk about, the right of resistance. Uh, and so I think it, it, maybe it's, we end up in the same place with a slow motion invasion changing the country and we end up just as bad off as the camp of the saints Probably not, but um, I, I think that in a crisis situation, the people would emerge in America in a way that they would not in Europe. I think the, the description of Europe is accurate, but the, that would, something different might happen in America. But maybe the, the, yeah, but the, the problem is that culturally and institutionally, even beyond the issue of immigration, formally speaking, the, the problem is, is that there's this spirit of just self-defeatism, uh, sort of a willingness to, to, to die that characterizes, I think, even like the American populace at large. I think all of their little boycotts of pe- things like Bud Light and all those things are just so fleeting and temporary. They're not really willing, uh, you know, to, they don't really see themselves as having having a culture to preserve that transcends, you know, the the ability of of like the markets and and, and consumer goods and all those things to percolate and to kind of just distract, like you yes. know, like like all the, the 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 sports and the media and the entertainment and the gadgets and all these things i think they take more priority than any you know cultural allegiance of the american people at large and so i see it in a different sense it's not maybe it's not immigration but i i do see just this exhaustion 
in the West, uh, including America. But the, the, in a, it's impossible to say whether this would be true. But part of the reason is, as you've identified, because they can buy Bud Light. They can watch the sports. They can play the computer games. Mm-hmm. You know, by definition, if you posit that a crisis will come and crises will come because that's just the way the, way the world works. I th- my theory is that Americans, a large amount of Americans could be recatechized in a way that I don't think Europeans can. I think for the most part, yeah. Europeans are way farther down the curve of civilizational suicide and self-hatred than the average American who is more just enervated, fat, stupid, and lazy, mm-hmm. and satiated with these various entertainments which the regime feeds him. But he could be recatechized if he couldn't feed his children and he took the necessary actions to change his situation. In the right situation, Americans could be recatechized and reborn for lack of a better better and this is and and that's perhaps why you know there's this kind of like this um the anticipating narratives like the white like the white supremacist terrorist narrative like anticipating because eventually things are going to crack and you know it may be economically motivated uh you know but just eventually things are going to crack and people are going to realize wait a minute we actually are losing things that we love and so they have to anticipate those types of reactions by you know categorizing them now as basically being like white supremacist terrorists and you know they just they're Absolutely. preparing the grounds for this narrative posturing these people are all completely ignorant of history so much of this i think is instinctual yeah. i mean these people it's fundamentally these people are snakes and they act on an instinctual basis towards evil so it's not like they're carefully parsing history or anyone in the biden white house is able to parse history uh, but the, <laughs> if they were instinctually, they realize what is definitely true, which is that massive societal changes are a step function. One day they're not; the next day they are. They're not. There's not some kind of smooth curve to get to. Here's the regime being in charge, and we go slowly down here. And here, the hated so-called white supremacists are in charge. If there were to be a flip, it'd be like this, right? You know, one day the regime is now taking boats. To uh, to go live in England or some other you know shit, <laughs> English, <laughs> some other country and uh, and uh, and and they they feel that they feel that yeah. in their bones they're afraid yeah. and they should be afraid mm-hmm. yeah so let me ask you this Charles um, are the enemies within the gates or are the enemies outside still. Well, my Twitter bio says the hour is late and Moloch is within the gates. So okay. I, I, I go with within the gates. <laughs> there's this, there's, there's this, um, this narrative on the conser- like the conservative movement, like conservative Inc. type side of things, where you know everything's focused on like the enemies in China and how China is going to get us and they're going to take down our country and we need to defend ourselves against these foreign enemies. Um, but to what extent? To what extent is that a distraction and people need to look more forcefully than they already do at the mechanisms and machinations of D.C.? Well, I I think it's 100 percent a distraction. I mean, I don't care about China at all other than like Kung Pao chicken is pretty good. Is that Chinese? I I I think it's American. Yeah, whatever. I I don't care what China does. Not at all. Don't care right. about Taiwan. Yeah. Don't care about Japan. I mean, we have we shouldn't defend Japan at all because a country that won't have any children doesn't deserve to be defended. As far as I'm concerned, the Chinese can have the entire Western Pacific, and as long as they're not too mean to us. In fact, they can probably have Hawaii too. Ultimately, I mean, <laughs> I mean, they'll probably take it over with like tourist dollars rather than warships. Yeah. I mean, China. Who cares about China? I mean, there's no reason for America to have any presence whatsoever in the Pacific. I, right. I mean, and I'm married to an Australian. 
but the, the, <laughs> Australia is a is a satrapy of China already. I mean, you yeah. have these like uh, people probably don't pay attention, but the Australians have been like, these like effeminate Australian politicians have been pounding their chest and talking about how we're going to have this new alliance with America. And I mean, if the Chinese told them to like bow down and kiss Xi Jinping's shoes, they would instantly do it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, so my, I, China is completely, I don't understand. I don't watch live TV, so I only get glimpses of this, but I, I agree that you see this narrative a lot on the American right or so-called right or pseudo right, that China matters. China doesn't matter to America at all. No. None, zero. I mean, it, it, it's- I agree with you. Yeah. It's yeah. a distraction, you know, and it like, like, yeah, <laughs> a, a lot of our, a lot of our bandwidth and our energy and, and our, our resources uh, it just it gets like absorbed and sucked up and down a black hole when we when we push so much of that narrative that like we need to be careful. The American need, Americans need to be careful because China's out to get it. Like there's this big balloon floating over like northern Cal like northern America and it's sopping up. I'm like, dude, have you heard of the NSA? Like, have you heard of the entire apparatus yeah. in Washington D.C.? That's the enemy. Like they're the ones yeah. that do this full time, twenty four seven. The enemy is. 90%, 85% inside American borders, and the other 15% is other regime uh, cohorts in the Anglosphere. So Britain, yeah. Australia, New Zealand. Israel, I, yeah. I, mean, I actually have more sympathy for Israel than I think a lot of people people do on the right, mostly because I would do what they were doing if I if I were them. And yeah. Yeah, that's what I always say too. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, have, I, look, I like Israel in many ways. They have a lot of children. I'd rather have them rule the Middle East than the Muslims. Uh, so, uh, but so they do what they do, and they. But the, our enemies are, generally speaking, the regime in the Anglosphere, and those yeah. are the only enemies. Like Russia is not yeah. our enemy either. I mean, I don't really care yeah. about Russia. Uh, I think uh, all I really care about that area is that Subcarpathian Ukraine, which is now part uh, Sub Subcarpathian Ruthenia, which is now part of Ukraine, should be given back to Hungary. Uh, but other than that, I don't really care about <laughs> the ones. Let the Russians do what they want to do, and, and you know, and I don't care about the Europeans. I want to defend the Europeans because, again, you know, yep. why should we do it when they won't do it for themselves? Precisely. Yeah, they 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 won't even defend their own borders. They they're they're allowing themselves to be invaded. Uh, and I mean, some of it is it's it's at the behest of the American regime. Like they're they're they are just vassal states that do whatever. We're I mean, it's the same thing. Like you, you describe Australia, right? You describe Australia with China. Well, Germany is like that with us, where we bomb their main source of of oil and, you know, or ga natural gas, and they're like, "Oh, thank you, America. We love you so much." You know, it's, it's like. Bizarre. I mean, it's back it's insane. Thing. I mean, the Australian thing is particularly interesting because they're a vassal state of two different empires. Yeah. They're an economic yeah. vassal of China and they're a political vassal of America. I uh, am yeah. political and cultural slash social vassal of America. I mean, I, I cannot describe to you how ruinous Australia is as a nation in terms of its in terms of the the loserness of its people. Uh, mm -hmm. During the Wuhan plague, and just in general, I mean, it, it, by I mean, most Americans have this bizarrely inaccurate conception of Australia as a land of rugged individualists. I mean, oh yeah, my, no. like that? No. Did you see the stand-up? There's a bit that was going around Twitter of the stand-up comedian from from Australia where he's like, uh, 
he's like, oh, I, I'll, I'll do whatever you tell me just so I could go back to the pub. And he's like, yeah. we all think that we would have opposed Hitler. Oh, I did and it's like, right. <laughs> it's like, that was oh, I would have, I would have been pointing out at Frank's house just to be able to get to go to the pub. Right. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's the way people are, especially there, especially and there. Guns and, you know, I mean, oh. it, it, Australians are total sheeple. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. in 1910, it was probably different, but even then they were, they were probably more so than, than Americans. Uh, more sheepish, but yeah, 1910 was a long, long time ago. I hate to break it to you. Yeah, they they lost all their best men at Gallipoli. That's basically That's also what happened. True, right? I mean, so, yeah. I mean, even like my my wife's grandfather who fought the Japanese in Papua New Guinea in World War II. Yeah. I mean, Americans don't conceive can't conceive of how brutal like a lot of the jungle wars against the Japanese. Oh. You see a little bit of it, but most of the American battles against the Japanese were were rain were standoff battles. The Australians did mm. a lot of jungle fighting. Like the English, oh. did, Burma, and so on, with, with the Japanese. Um, so those were men, but the, all the men yeah. went, so, went away somewhere. And uh, and it's it's you know like I mean New Zealand, of course, is an even worse chinocracy, but um, but it's just uh, yeah. it's just yeah. it's just terrible. So well, I'm not even super negative on this podcast. I'm like actually <laughs> positive, yeah. you're the guy. Yeah, you're. I, I, we we are turning like because I I always tell people like you have this spectrum of of where could things go and i'm like well you got charles haywood on the one side uh where it's like here's the regime could collapse any minute and and then you have you know uh nicolo nicolo oh. well nicolo soldo on, on the other yeah. uh where you know, turbo america you know thousand year american empire the regime is forever and it's like and i, I we're turning you into nicolo soldo no no I'm, <laughs> I'm a big soldo fan i mean he and i are me too i've never, I've never yeah. been in real life but you know certainly so i have a lot of respect for, for, for soldo and so on but i have responded to him directly Directly in several pieces, yeah. he's aware of that. I mean, I, I keep waiting yeah. for him to to write to to you know give me some love. He did give me some yeah. love back the other day on, on a different piece. Um, so so I, I, one of us is right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I, I hope it's you. I mean, I, I I think so. I mean, some of it is like I I'm not so. I mean, CJ is 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 pretty black pilled. Uh, is that is that accurate? Is, is that accurate? Uh, I mean, his his Twitter bio is the Spengler quote. You know, optimism <laughs> is cowardice. So let's let's just leave that there. But um, the I, I think I mean just looking at that chart and and I, I look at the you know the project that we're engaged in that I that I, I I'm apparently the leading activist for um, yeah. is is that um, I mean honestly like shifting American evangelicals into actively politically engaging with their faith in Christ in mind mm-hmm. um, is it is a, 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 a huge paradigm shift that could, that the regime again, is terrified of. I mean, this is this is why David French has a job. I mean, this, this horrid mediocrity. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Like David French, Russell Moore, all of these people. I mean, so much of um, regime evangelicalism like it exists at a top level because like the regime sustains it and wants it and and yes. and, mm-hmm. and props these people up uh, because I, you I, have I, to. Sort of David French in my mind, and I'm throwing. <laughs> Well, I'll just say I'll say some good things uh, to distract okay, from that. But he, it's the you, yeah, you get. I mean, you you clear those people out, and 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 they're and and the the past three years has destroyed their credibility in a way they will never recover. They will never recover it. People do not listen to these guys anymore, especially important people, uh, people that lead churches. They're 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 now much more open. To these ideas, and so some of these fights that I that I'm involved in online and everything with with different you know Christian groups, some of it is just it's it's there there's a, a new paradigm, a, a new situation politically that that American Christians are currently facing, 
And so many people are, are clinging to the old way of life. I mean, obviously, you know uh, Aaron Wren. Um, and like his, his three worlds of evangelicalism, I think is, is, is absolutely brilliant. I reference it all the time. There's a book coming out in January on that. Yes. Yes. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Uh, and, um, and so anyway, I, it, it, so many people are clinging to the old neutral world, but now we're in negative world and Christians becoming adapted to that and Christian leaders kind of rising, uh, that are adapted to this negative world, ready to fight, I mean, that's the big thing. I mean, so many, I, I mentioned this online, I think yesterday, um, there's one, one, of, one, of, one of my favorite mutuals, uh, Glomar Responder. He finally, he came back, you know, Elon let him come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. X, uh, awesome dude. And uh, he mentioned that, you know, in the 2010s, he was this atheist or, or early, he was an atheist. And, and the thing that turned him off with ch- from church was that it was not a place for men, right? It was just this, this gynocracy, right? That's, that Stephen that's Wolf it. talks about. And, and so what, if you have a church that is actively fighting, that's le- actually led by men, not, and, and not just nominally where the men, you know, are, uh, do the bidding of the women where they, they officially have all the titles, but everything in the back of their head is, oh, what are the ladies going to think about this? Yeah. But actually a church that's led by men as men, uh, boldly going forth, uh, your churches like that are attractive to all sorts of, of guys who haven't really cared about church at all. And there's so many people that, that want to be led, that people are desperate for leaders. I mean, you, you talked uh, with my, my friends you know, at New Founding uh, the other day about like a Red Caesar. And I mean, people are desperate for that, but they're also desperate for leadership like of, of that kind locally yeah, um, in, in real life. And, and so like that, that I think to, to give you the white pill for today, like those things are happening. Those kind of pastors and leaders are, are, are coming forth. Like they're, they're rising through the ranks and, and God is raising them up to And, and to CJ, you, you've got to not be blackfield. You've got to say, yes. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a defeatist and no. I'm, I'm doing this podcast and I have my real name on it. And I, you know, I, I am active. This isn't my real name, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, hey guys, um, I actually got to run. Um, so I don't know if, if you want to keep going, but I actually do have to bail. Yeah. Well, CJ has to bail. I think, uh, do you, uh, do you have more time, Charles, or uh, we can two minutes. Uh, the, okay. Uh, the, the kids are home from school, so I, I need to go beat them. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> yes, uh, as, as a good patriarch should, uh, yes, of course. Yeah, paddle. Um, <laughs> well, uh, no, but, but I, I have a few minutes, certainly. Okay. Well, uh, CJ, do you have anything you want to plug before we, we, uh, uh, before we say goodbye? At, uh, what is, I always forget my Twitter at Contra Mordor on Twitter. And, uh, my sub stack is linked over there. Um, and that's it. That's, that's what I do. Chronicles magazine podcast. Um, well, we'll have Charles on, uh, soon. That'd be great. And, and you can talk to Paul, you and Paul. I, should... I have, I, I've corresponded a little bit with Paul last, last year. He okay. He occasionally reads my stuff. I read his yeah. stuff all the time, obviously. <laughs> but anyways, it was good to talk to you guys. Nice talk yep, to you. See- See you, CJ. Yeah, uh, Charles, we'll we'll talk a little bit longer here. Uh, if, and I really appreciate all the, the time that you're you're giving us here today. Um, and, and so, yeah, I I look at you know the future of um, really optimistically. I mean, even even I mean, I mentioned like, well, what's the thing that's going to push them over the line? Because I'm I'm not you know naive. You know, there are a lot of I, I have to deal with you know evangelicals who are, who are who are trapped in this paradigm, especially evangelical men who. Um, they're very passive. I mean, they're just t- they're typical American men. They're very passive. They're very uh, submissive to their wives. They um, 
they're they're just not comfortable in their own skin. Um, and yep. then and so you talk about I mean for, for me like I, I tell them like read the Psalms right read the Psalms and look at how how David is is talking about Jesus and how is he talking about Jesus he's he's talking about Jesus defeating his enemies like so many of the Psalms that's what's happening right yeah. his enemies are getting clobbered by Jesus and so like you read, read that read and then the you Psalms for, Psalms for Lent the Orthodox do it in what they call Kathismas yeah divided into 20, 20 sections so groups read the read the Psalms continuously so yes and I, that's very very evident in the Psalms. Oh yeah, and it, and, it, and so some of it. I mean, I look at like uh, you know even like I use the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, it's just you know it's pretty standard uh, Protestant lectionary, uh, but I have to revise the Revised Common Lectionary because it was you know written in the mid twentieth century, c- compiled in the mid twentieth century. And when you read the Psalms, um, they always cut out all the good parts, mm-hmm. right? They always cut out all the parts where you know the the bad guys are getting their teeth smashed in, <laughs> and and so oh. I. I I'm like we did, we did read this and and part of it I mean this is uh one of one of you know my intellectual um you know uh you know mentors I guess one of one of the men that I, I gained so much from is is Jim James B Jordan mm-hmm. I almost said Jim Jordan people always get confused they think I'm talking yeah. about the congressman um but uh I uh, James B Jordan he, he and his his main thing is like the church needs the psalms badly if we sing the psalms and we 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 know them deep in our bones then when you read the gospels and you think about Jesus, it's not, he's not this hippie flower child, wimpy guy. He is a king with a, with a sword. Well, I saw this he meme. rules. You know? I saw this meme the other day that, uh, again, I can't really do memes justice, but basically it's <laughs> a, you know, a priestess of some kind uh, with a, you know, behind a pulpit with a rainbow flag and this love is love yeah. sign. And yeah. Jesus was at the door, coming in the door, um, holding a whip. I'm <laughs> saying, and who are you? <laughs> yes, I mean that's that's just it. I mean, so much of it, like there, it, it, we're we're in a time, I think, in the church that is, uh, you know, at least in, in in like you know the history of the Western Church is, I think, very analogous to the time of the Reformation. Just a tremendous amount of religious upheaval, um, and and. A, a a ton of of reform of 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 so much of the the dross and, and the direct that has has you know just glommed onto the church yeah. over over the you know last few hundred years. Yeah, I of course am noted for analyses. I'm noted for anything. I'm noted for <laughs> the fact that uh, the, uh, I focus on what the left is and how it has destroyed the West since the Enlightenment. Yeah. But I think on a more narrower scale. And while the, the two things are definitely related, they're not the same thing. The feminization of American society has been by far the most disastrous thing that has led to the direct implementation of a lot of these horrors that are not necessarily, uh, would not necessarily otherwise have been prime objectives of a, of a leftist movement. I also yeah. think it's an interesting thing. I saw a guy, William Briggs, who's on, on Twitter, uh, and he mm-hmm. has this as a site too, and I'm, I'm friends with him. He had a very interesting point the other day, which is that normally at this point in the cycle of leftist regimes, you'd see much more open and naked political terror, like people disappearing yeah. in the middle of the night being killed and so on. I think in American context, that would lead, lead to war. But regardless, yeah. we don't see that. And even like the electoral justice protest, I mean, sure, the, the terrorization of the electoral people who participate in electoral justice protest is a crime against humanity that needs to be severely punished for everybody Absolutely. involved. 
when we come to power. I mean, everybody down to secretaries, like, you know, and during mm -hmm. the Holocaust, they now mm -hmm. still persecute secretaries. Yeah. And, uh, 96 year old secretaries. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. We, we should do the same thing for anybody involved in persecuting electoral justice protesters. Yeah. But leaving that aside, the reality is by historical standards, spending six months in jail is hardly the end of the world. I mean, it's very bad and I don't want to spend six months in jail, but no. yeah, but I think Briggs uh, made the excellent point that this is probably a function of the feminization of the left. That is, yeah. the left, the men kill other men that they don't like. Mm -hmm. They're back to friend enemy distinction. That's yeah. what they do, especially when you're a you know, cretinist leftist, they just kill people because that's what they do. But now yeah. feminized people don't do that. They they act in a you know, consensus-based fashion where we have correction. And so, yeah, they have a tremendous amount of hate, but their actual physical actions tend to be very different from those of men. So I thought that was a very interesting insight that cuts both ways. The feminization of America has largely destroyed America but, you know, in terms of like people oh, yeah. actually getting killed or, or otherwise severely hurt. Um, I mean, some people are getting killed, obviously, by the by the government. But well, just just look at uh, look at, for example, I think I think a good historical example is I mean, it, it, we could get into um, you know, who killed JFK and why. But I mean, say say the regime, you say we take Tucker Carlson's line, right, that it was the CIA that killed yeah. Kennedy. Um that's that's back when America was masculine. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, these are the the you know Dulles and and the men that ran the CIA. Like these are World War II veterans. These are men who you, you bring up. You know the war against Japan. I you know if you watch the, like the HBO series The Pacific, it's yep. very much you know just brutal brutal yep. combat. And uh, these are men who who experienced that leading the CIA. And then it's like here's this guy we don't like. Well, we'll just take him out. Yeah. Right. Fast forward to. You know, twenty. I mean, this is like the current events, uh, the Durham report. Like, fast forward to this week, and you find out if you didn't already understand this, that the entire regime, all the major players, the most they could do is just write up a fake dossier and and try to remove the president. Right, like, not, that's not the equivalent intelligent one. I mean, like one it yeah. was obvious to anybody who's intelligent, and it's it's, it's yeah. total weeniness. I mean, yeah. I'm not encouraging. I don't. I'm not. I don't want the regime to just go off and you know pull assassination. Take, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That's not what we're arguing. But it's 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 just an analysis. Like they, it's it's amazing that they they cannot bring themselves to do this stuff anymore. Yeah. And, you know, and, it's and, and so like a lot of Americans worry about they're going to come confiscate the guns. They're never going to come confiscate the guns because no, it, that, so. that 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 would just that would lead to violence, and they're not prepared to accept the the widespread violence or the risks of that. I mean, it's it's multifaceted it's not just they don't know the, the way that they will do gun control is is this very feminized you know almost this like this um manipulative legal way where you get all the da's to come in and and you prosecute anyone like kyle rittenhouse that, that that's only how works, you do that only works in a narrow set of places that they already put yeah. control and so it's that I mean, exactly it's crap, it's crap for for advancing the regime goal of Stability and so the and, yeah. and they're and they're another facet of feminization is that they're just afraid. Of, I mean, being fearful, yeah. you're they're fearful. I said earlier the regime was fearful and they should be fearful. They're fearful mm -hmm. and because it, it's yeah. feminized. They're, they're un, I, I keep I, I, like every podcast I'm on. I, I keep bringing up this quote of uh, of Cicero about Caesar uh, in during the Caesar civil wars. That uh, Cicero was an opponent of, of Caesar, but he he mm -hmm. he described Caesar as a man of unsurpassed daring, hardened to every danger. 
yeah. you know, there's nobody yeah. like that. Sorry, the regime yeah. isn't like that. You have no. to do that if you're going to be a winner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, even just looking at like the the Bolshevik Revolution, like look at Lenin. Yeah, you know, this is not a guy who is like, oh, what happens if we lose? You know, like they, that. That's not even a thought. It's like, well, uh, we're going. All, these are people that are all in. Like they've committed their lives to it, yeah. and and the regime's not that way at all. It's There's like they inherited a person in the regime like that. Most of those no. people are, are on Xanax or you know, <laughs> you know, gender drugs or whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, they, they, yeah. people, I, I have no respect whatsoever for the regime. It doesn't no. mean the regime isn't dangerous. You know, it, oh yeah, it, a flailing child in a backhoe, as I've the analogy I've used before, uh, it yeah. can, it can cause a lot of damage. <laughs> the fact I, I I cannot think. I don't have a lot of respect for most people on on the kind of mainstream right uh, either, as yeah. I, as you can tell from some of my earlier comments. But I can't think <laughs> of a single person. Let me think. Like anybody in the regime, anybody that I have any respect for whatsoever, they don't have total contempt for. Uh, yeah. I, 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 and I mean, I shouldn't say you know, it's kind of, contempt is in fact a a emotion that Christians should avoid. But I still have total contempt for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think I mean it's it's deserved. It's um it, it, I I think about that too. Like there is there is not a single. I mean, even you know, you you look at like if if I'm thinking about if if I were in the regime or if I were you know an apparatchik somewhere in the regime, like who would I want to be the the next you know president? Um. Yeah, who would be who would who would I want? Yeah. Uh, it would. I mean, even it, the obvious answer I think is probably like Gavin Newsom. But even that guy, it's just he's just good looking. That's the yeah, only I mean, that's the only thing about him. Like he's not some brilliant no strategist. Charisma, no intelligence. Yeah. They have no one. They're not sending their best. <laughs> no, because they have because no, no best to send. It's not like they're there, there, there is no best. Yeah, there is no best. I mean, and, and, and some of it I think is their their whole system is. Is based on you know this kind of nepotism and and the sycophancy and and, and all of, of these things like that where it's just like the worst rise to the top. There is no best that rises through the ranks. Yeah. There are no bold people because like any you know some of it is like uh, just think if you're you are on the left and you're a man and you're 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 a man of great talent and charisma and ability. Um, you're not going to rise to the top. You're going to be pushed down to the bottom. Yeah. Right. They, they, you have to know That's this. Guys go into finance and things like that. Like you, yeah. you don't see men in leftist political positions. No. Anybody who's highly intelligent and capable is going to go into finance or maybe law for people who are really mm. dumb to be a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but finance, but of course, finance back to our earlier conversation is, uh, is all fake. I mean, yeah. uh, finance is not, Finance, in the sense of historically understood, is financial engineering uh, that is uh, has no social value or almost no social value. So, yeah. Anyway, so we should probably wrap it up because uh, yes, children like yes. What uh, yes? So uh, and again, thank you, thank you so much for your time. I mean, what what stuff do you want people to plug? I mean, our podcast audience is growing, but it's not huge. But yeah, we want to send people your way. The the more the better. So. my primary site is theworthyhouse.com. I'm on Twitter and stuff too, but I'm not a hot takes guy. I don't get into cool high profile fights like, like Andrew. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> like yet. Um, but theworthyhouse.com is where I do most of my writing. So go there, check okay. it out. I got uh, something like 500 uh, pieces written. So many of them are book reviews that are that are actually my, my thoughts masquerading as book reviews. So <laughs> check it out. Uh, well, thank you so much uh, for your time here, Charles. And and yeah, if everyone's you know made it this far, 
Uh, again, I, I recommend everything that, that Charles writes. Uh, you will benefit from it greatly. Uh, listen to his podcast. There's, he appears all, all over the place. Um, uh, follow him online. And, and yeah, it, it's, it's great. As for me, um, I had an article that just came out. I, I wrote about the most abused verse in the Bible, uh, which used to be Matthew 7.1. That's uh, been recently overtaken by Galatians 3.28. Um, and so you want you want to check that one out. Uh, that is, uh, there is uh, no n- neither uh, Jew nor Greek, male uh, slave nor free, male no female male or female. Um, all are one in Christ. Has been abused lately. Yeah, I got oh. that out. I got to check that. Yeah, out. yeah, it is it's badly badly abused, and so I, I had to address this, and so um, go check that out. There's other articles that are going to come out. Um, this week as well at news.gab.com uh but but that's it for me uh and again thank you to our guest uh, charles uh thank you to, to cj who had to dip out a little early um and please yeah like subscribe share all of those things and, and get this in front of as many people as possible because this is an awesome conversation and again thank you very much charles My and to all of you thank you we'll see you next time